Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. James chapter 4 is where we are, and uh, if you are physically able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning? And just to give us a little context, uh, when the Bible was originally written, these letters, most in the New Testament were written, they weren't written with chapter and verse. We know this, right? Those were added later on for us to be able to reference. And so for continuity and context's sake, I'd like to actually begin chapter 4's reading with the last verse of chapter 3. So we'll begin there in, in chapter 3, verse 18, and let's go down through verse 10. The scripture reads... Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I ask now that as we dive into this sermon, as I begin to preach uh, what I have prepared, that you would do what only you can. That's our hope, Lord, um, is not to hear the thoughts, the opinions of man, but we want the thoughts and the perspective, and we want the truth of God. So speak to us, God. Holy Spirit, would you please speak? We're asking you to do that. And more importantly, too, would you give us ears to hear what you want to say? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I want to preach this morning from the title... The missing piece. The missing piece, certainly, if you haven't caught it. It's a pun. It's a pun. It's kind of punny. Don't mean to punish you, but it's a pun. All right. The missing piece. That's what we have here in James 4. We have uh, a missing piece going on. I don't know when the last time you were pulling your hair out because you lost some kind of missing piece. I think back to... Uh, This past Wednesday, I was at a local coffee shop doing a little studying, a little bit of work there. My phone dies, as is usual. I like to live my life on the edge, low battery, low fuel. Anybody else procrastinators, where you at? My people. 
And there goes my phone battery, and man, there is nothing more fulfilling in that moment of dead phoneness. I'm going to get really theological here. When thou finds a charger in thy backpack. And I reached into my backpack, and you know, you're reaching around, and <laughs> my backpack's also a bit of a reflection of my life as well. And so I'm kind of just digging around, and boom, I, I get the cord. And you, you know, if you charge your phone as much as me, you know, you don't have to see the cord, you just touch it. And you know that's my charger, right? I have my laptop charger in there as well, but no, it's, that's thicker. This one's softer, thinner. I pull it out, lo and behold, it was missing the piece that plugs into the wall. Yeah, I wasn't laughing. Um, it was, it was uh, devastating. It was just the whole USB thing. And so there I was, looking like an idiot with a dead phone and not the wall charger piece. So what, what is it for you? Maybe it was a bill that you lost, a piece of paper, some piece of information. Maybe you are a puzzler. Anybody like puzzles in here? I love puzzles. Nothing worse than that one dreaded missing piece. Ever, you ever missed that sock? You know that sock? That sock? Those socks? Where do they go? Where, there's a mountain of socks somewhere, and all of our dryers, the, it's a conspiracy theory I have, actually. Let's talk about conspiracy theories in church this morning. Um, I have a conspiracy theory that there's the secret tunnel from our dryers, and it takes out one sock a day, and it sends it out somewhere in Washington, D.C. Quote me on that. All right. Welcome to Souls Church. If you're here for the first time, we're really glad. Anyway, um, recently I've been getting into some construction projects. Man, this is one of the hardest parts of, you know, when you are a homeowner and you start to kind of learn along the way. It's nice to have a brother-in-law who's an engineer, I'm not going to lie. But, but along the way, you know, you learn to do little Mr. Fix-It things. And, and the hardest part I'm learning about the big construction jobs is those little pieces. You know, you got to be like, you try to be all like burly, like a, like a macho man and do all these jobs. But at the end of the day, you got to be really careful. It's those little screws. So some pieces, here's what I've learned. Some missing pieces are more valuable than others. Some are as uh, insignificant as, uh, like, we, like we joked, um, a sock, where, where others you will search high and low until you find it, like that dead phone looking for a wall charger. I think of an example this week where we had a, a valuable missing piece for my son Judah, who's uh, five years old, turned six this August, and he had a qu quite a busy week in school. Uh, a lot of different themes and activities. There was um, like bring a stuffed animal to school day, which he brought this giant stuffed skateboard <laughs> to school, of course. Um, and then there was cowboy day, and, and so we dressed him up in a flannel, had the tucked in shirt and jeans, except we didn't have a cowboy hat, so he wore a trucker hat, and he looked more like a truck driver than he did a cowboy. And he made sure when he came home, he said, Dad, Everyone at school said, I don't look like a cowboy. I was like, sorry, bud. Um, we tried. We tried. Daylight savings, man. He's like waking up earlier, so we're scrambling, trying to, who knows what he looks like when he gets to school, to be honest. I find out afterwards, I pick him up, I'm like, oh, sorry about that. Um, but, but there was another day this week. I don't remember if it was Thursday or Friday. I think it was Friday, but it was Wacky Hair Day. Wacky Hair Day. And uh, my wife, Brittany, got this incredible idea. It would totally, this is not my picture of my son, but this is an example we found online of this wave that you can make with your hair. You spray paint it blue, and you put a Lego surfer in it. Now, if your children are, are anything like mine, or if you're anyway like this, once we told Judah about this idea, there was no turning back. Like, we were going to do this with his hair, 
even if it meant we're paying $1,000 for someone who's a hairdresser to come in and do it. Like, we were doing this. Uh, it just so happens the night before, I think, Jeff, I think Jeff was over, Jeff D'Souza, and he was helping us a bit, trying to get it ready, um, and he, we, we were kind of figuring it out, but we could not find what was going to be our rendition of this, which was for Judah, our son, he's a skateboarder, and so we thought we'd make like a little quarter pipe, which is... I'm not going to try to explain to you what a quarter pipe is. It's, uh, it's a skate ramp. And it looks like that a bit. It's got a curve. And we, we knew we had this skateboarder Lego. But it just so happened to be the one piece out of all the Legos that decided to skate away. And we could not find it. We looked everywhere until victory. <laughs> and if you can't tell, this is actually Chewbacca on a skateboard, and uh, this is what we ended up putting in uh, Judah's hair. Here it is. There's the Chewbacca <laughs> on the skateboard. My wife engineered this uh, masterfully. She's, there it is. He's just, he's shredding Judah's blonde hair. It's awesome. Uh, the missing piece. Where were we, right? There it is. Um, here in James 4, an illustration to help us understand what James is getting at here in James 4. James is describing a valuable missing piece in the Christian life for this church. You know, just like a silly Lego in my son's hair, did you know that there are valuable pieces to your relationship with God? That when they go missing, there are major repercussions. There are certain key pieces that make up a fullness in your relationship with God that without it there's major ramifications and here we see James describing that and this piece this key significant missing piece in chapter 4 is the piece of peace he actually tells us how valuable this piece really is at the end of chapter 3, we saw that verse. He says, the fruit of righteousness, did you see that in verse 18, is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is a way for James to say peace is a valuable piece of the Christian life. He uses an agricultural analogy. And he says, in order to reap what he calls righteousness, which is right living, which is living in the calling and the life that God has for us, righteousness, in order to reap that, you have to sow the seed of peace, which is sown by what he calls those who make peace, which is certainly a phrase he grabbed from his big brother Jesus, who said, blessed are the, what? Peacemakers. James is saying there is no full Christian life without peace. There is no righteousness. You can't reap the fruit of righteousness. What we all are seeking to do, Jesus said, I've appointed you and called you and sent you to bear fruit. That's what we want. But there's no fruitfulness without this missing piece, the piece of peace. And James actually gives us three areas, three areas where peace is lacking in this church. Did you notice it? He describes peace missing from a relationship with others. We see peace missing within the heart. And he describes peace missing in a relationship with God. Three key areas where peace must exist. Peace with others, peace within, and peace with God as those who are followers 
of Jesus. And a little help here. The definition that I want to give us this morning of the word peace that we see there at the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 3. Um, in the New Testament, the Greek word is arene. In the Old Testament, you might have heard the, phrase, the word shalom, peace. Paul begins every one of his, most of his letters with grace and peace, charis and shalom. Grace for the Gentile, shalom for the Jew. This word peace, the idea is that it's an internal and or external state of wholeness, harmony, and tranquility. Wholeness, harmony, and tranquility. Wholeness. In fact, the word shalom in the Old Testament, it was used, the picture that we get in the Old Testament, it, it's, it's a brick that is playing a fundamental part in the structure of a wall. So you have a wall, but if it has a missing brick, it's lacking shalom. It's not complete. It's not whole. But when that final, think of it like that last brick is put in, now there's peace, wholeness. Sometimes in life, it's like we're missing bricks in relationships, right? There's cracks, there's brokenness, and this is that piece. Or harmony, harmony. It's, it's music that doesn't have a missed note. It's that, it's that peaceful. Now, how many of you guys, you find great peace in music? I do. And, but if we're honest, the music that we find great peace in is harmonious, unless you like jazz and you're different. But, but for the most part, the peace that we get comes from the harmony of the music, the, the blending together of the notes and the lyrics and the chords and tranquility. Think of Jesus when he's with his disciples. They're in a storm. They're in a boat. The disciples are freaking out. And Jesus speaks to the, way, the wind and the waves. And he says what? Peace. Be still. And the storm ceased. And there was now tranquility. A key ingredient of our lives. Let me ask you this morning. Is there any area of your life that you are missing peace? Missing peace anywhere? Missing peace this morning in a relationship with someone? Missing peace this morning in your heart? Potentially, are you confident that you're at peace with God? Well, James is going to help us get there. Let's look at what God's word says to help us fill in this missing peace. The first thing that James leads us to look at is the missing piece of, number one, peace with others. Peace with others. After talking about peace at the end of chapter 3, he begins chapter 4 with this question, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James is describing relationships that lack peace. He says, war and fights among you. He's speaking to the people of God. And he's speaking to lack, a lack of peace relationally there. And he describes this lack of peace two ways. It's interesting. Wars and fights. Wars and fights. Which are, are two connected ideas and two connected parts, but are distinct in their own way. You might have heard the phrase before, like, you can win the battle, but you won't win the war. This word fight can also mean, uh, can also mean battle. Um, the idea is this. The word war he uses there, it means some kind of overarching conflict. Right? You know that nations can be at war when they're not actually physically fighting. Do we know this? And so this is an overarching conflict, a war. The fight, the battle, we, we know this probably too well, is when that overarching conflict is fleshed out in real space and time. You ever have a fight that was the expression of a war? Maybe a decade-long war? 
maybe a, a, a generational war, I don't know. And James is going to diagnose this. He's, he's going to say, this is common. This is, um, you know, this is the world we live in. And um, Scripture is simply stating a fact of life that wherever you find humans, you find wars and fights, don't you? Even in the very beginning when sin entered this world, it became a blame game between Adam and Eve. Wars and fights. But what James is helping us understand is, listen, get your eyes off of people out there. The church is really good at forgetting what the Bible teaches, which is that judgment begins in the house of God. And we love to talk about what's wrong with people out there all the while not looking at the mirror, which shows what might be wrong with me. And that's what James is getting at. Where do wars and fights come from? He says, not between those nations, not between those political parties. Where do they come from among you? among me, among us. And he says it's, it's rooted in this. The answer to that question that he asks, that he answers with the question, is do they not come, look at this, for desires for pleasure that war in your members. The case here that James is talking about is some sort of unmet desire. You ever had a fight or a war? And there's, by the way, there's different degrees of this. But you had some sort of desire for pleasure, and it wasn't satisfied. You had an expectation. You, you, you had a standard. You, you were, were looking to someone to give you some sort of desire fulfillment, and it was unmet. And the result, in so many different degrees, this could be great in extent. This could be legal in its extent, but this could sometimes just be small stuff, like, oh, I thought they were going to hold the door open for me, and they did it, right? And it's usually, in, as, as, as married couples, this is often where I know Brittany and I, we find, you start to learn this after a while, that it, it says in Song of Solomon that it's the little foxes that spoil everything, right? It's like the little things, like, you know, we, we have our disagreements about the big things, but sometimes it's just like, it's the little thing. The other day was a discussion about bread and toast. She said, Bernie asked me, hey, can you bring a piece of toast in the bag for Evie? So you want me to toast a piece of bread? No, bring a piece of bread. But you said toast. So two different, anyway, all right? It was actually funny. But, you know, it's sometimes it's these little, it's, but it's these desires for pleasure. Think about right now in your life the relationships that you are lacking peace in. The wars and fights that you're in. And I want you to identify the unmet expectation you had. And I'm not saying it was a wrong expectation. Just identify it. Start to think about it. What did they do to you? What did they say to you? What didn't they do that you expected them to do? James is saying, that's the source of fights. Now, what do you do as a follower of Jesus who's faced with relational conflict? What do we do? Do. Well, Romans 12, 18 says this. This is a really, I'm going to give us some helpful scriptures today from God's word. It tells us this, that if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So whatever the nature of your conflict is, here's God's word prescribing our, our, our call here. As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, this is saying and it's doing two things for us. The first thing that it's saying and doing is that it's saying, I think, in a way that lifts a weight, that it doesn't all depend on you. That's good news. As much as depends on you. Isn't it good to know that it doesn't all depend on you? Like, there's a weight sometimes we carry for stuff that doesn't depend on us. 
There are families that have been ripped apart because of dad or mom doing something, and the, the spouse that got left behind is wearing the weight of that because they think it all depends on them. No. You see, it takes two people to reconcile. It doesn't all depend on you. It doesn't all. We need to understand this. Even Jesus said that there's, there's going to be relationships in your life, especially as a follower of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace everywhere. Jesus, the way Jesus said it is the, the, the closer you are to me, it's not going to be the byproduct that you're perfectly at peace with everyone else around you. I just love that you're a devoted follower of Jesus. He said, in fact, the, the opposite is going to be true. Following me is going to often cause division, even within households. So, so there's, there's a sense in which we need to let the weight come off. Not everything depends on me when it comes to peace, especially if it's a toxic relationship, especially if the person has legitimately sinned against you and they are unrepentant. The worst thing that you could probably do in that situation is be restored in relationship with them. I've heard stories of this where you have family members that have assaulted other family members. Well, God's word says to forgive. And then it happens again. And again, and again, and again. No, no. as much as depends on you, it, it doesn't all depend on you. We need, to let, we need to remind ourselves we're not Jesus here. Okay? He's got to change hearts. As much as this, though, takes a weight off, it puts a weight on. What James is also saying, not everything depends on you, but don't ever let your lack of peace with something, with someone, be because of something that did depend on you. It doesn't all depend on you, but don't ever let your lack of peace with someone be because of something that depended on you. As much as depends on you, live at peace with all men. So here's the mandate of Scripture for those who find themselves in relational conflict. It's Hebrews 12. It tells us this, pursue peace with all people. There's the mandate. What do I do in this relational conflict? You can't control everything, but here's what you are called to do. You're called, I'm called to pursue peace. Pursue peace is important. This is a phrase that's used all throughout the scriptures. Seek peace and pursue it. Uh, the idea there is it's something that you're actively chasing, not waiting to show up. How many of us, we handle our conflicts that way? I'll just kind of let it resolve itself. I'll let peace show up to my door like an Amazon Prime package. And here it's saying, no, 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 we're called to pursue peace just as God pursued peace with us through his son, Jesus. We're called to pursue peace the same way. And holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And this is why, looking carefully, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and many be, def be defiled. Um, the moment that we are harmed, that we are hurt, that we had some expectation, now there's a war and there's a conflict. The moment that we feel that harm, the heart's natural bend is to take deep roots in bitterness. It's not a conscious decision. Do you know that? I'm not bitter. I didn't choose to be bitter. You don't choose to be bitter. Your heart does, and it's deceitful. And the wounds, in a, in a sense, are what cause you to hold that grudge. And when you don't pursue peace, you let that bitterness Grow. Bitterness does not stay dormant. It does not remain the same size. It grows to the point, this is scary, that many can be defiled by it. So there's people in your life, they're not even the ones that hurt you, but they're being hurt by something that someone did to you. Because that bitterness wasn't resolved, but we have this prescription. The prescription is, listen, in the moment of harm, pursue peace. We're called to pursue peace. Uh, this isn't the only place, certainly, that we see that we're called 
to pursue peace. Ephesians 4 says it this way. It's not up on the screen, but listen to this scripture. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, listen closely, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. It doesn't say it's going to be easy. There's going to be some bearing with. And some people, you got to bear them. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, I'm bearing, I'm bearing you. Come here, you grizzly bear. All right. But you bear with them in love. Listen to this. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How much more wholeness could we have in the body of Christ if Christians did this? Endeavored. What if we were as passionate about peacemaking as we were about gossiping? The unity of the Spirit would happen. And Jesus said, when the church is unified, the world looks on and goes, what is that bringing you together? I want to know that, God. And for far too many people, it's, I don't want to know that, God. Because look at how it drives you apart. And what we need to remind people is, listen, I don't know what you've seen in Christians, but let me tell you about Jesus. This is, I think this is where evangelism needs to go more and more. I'm sorry for what you've seen. Let's look at the person of Jesus, because he is the poster child of the Christian faith, not that person who claimed to be a Christian. And when you look at Jesus, Jesus leads us as his followers to be peacemakers. Right? We know the scripture. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is one of his beatitudes. This is what it means to be of him, is that you're a peacemaker. And when you get into Matthew chapter 18 specifically, you see Jesus describe an extensive list of what it looks like to pursue peace with someone. And I wish I had more time to do this. I'm going to recommend a book to you, though. It's called The Peacemaker. The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It is one of the greatest works that I've ever uncovered and looked at that details the step-by-step process of peacemaking and what that should look like as those who are called to pursue it. And in the book, I just want to kind of focus on one specific thing that he talks about in the book Peacemaking. What Ken Sandy says is that this, in conflict, there are three basic ways that we tend to respond. Three basic ways. And he illustrates this through what he calls the slippery slope of conflict. And there tends to be three ways, and often we find ourselves in one of the two extremes, and there's always that third middle way of Jesus. But for some of us, think about your life here. I've had to think about my own. I want to encourage you to do the same here. It says this, that there's one uh, sense and reaction that he calls, it's not peacemaking, but he calls it peacefaking. And this is the escape response, the escape response. And it's the slippery slope. I mean, it, it can go as far as people who take their own lives in suicide. But it usually looks like something that's denying. Denial is where it starts. Let me read you what what he means by that. One way to escape from a conflict is to pretend that a problem does not exist. Some of you guys are great at that. Like, oh, I just forgave them. No, you didn't. You denied that they hurt you. It's not the same thing. Forgiveness is the admitting of an offense against you. You can't forgive what was never done against you. So there's a sense in which we can, instead of calling it forgiveness, we actually den- we're in denial of what actually hurts and what should hurt. Another way to refuse what should be done to resolve a conflict properly. How about this, this next form of that? It kind of goes deeper. So next to denial, you have ne- then this mode to flight. This is what you see. Another way to escape from conflict is to run away. So you deny that it exists, and then it gets further, and you, you run away. This may take the form, listen closely, of pulling away from a relationship, 
quitting a job, filing for divorce, and this might be bad for business, but changing churches. We wanted to be clear about this from the very beginning. Soulless church is not your Messiah. You need Jesus. And what you're going to find here is what you're going to find for the most part in every church. Guess what? Broken people. And if your hope is that you come here and you experience this redemptive experience because of the... There's only one Redeemer. His name is Jesus. It's not us. And so there's a great possibility that for somebody in this room... You're here at Solace because you've run away from peacemaking with a different relationship. I'm not, I'm not saying you're kicked out or anything. Don't hear me. You're excommunicated. We're not doing that right now. Well, here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Pursue peace. That's your number one priority. Otherwise, that bitterness is going to defile everybody else in this room. The bitterness you don't deal with, it's going to spread to everyone else around us. Now, that's one extreme. The other extreme is not the escape response, but it's the attack response. The attack response. Uh, the escape response acts like it doesn't exist and it runs away, but the attack response, it does the exact opposite. It runs into assault, even litigation, legal action. Someone, here's what he writes about uh, assault response. Some people try to overcome an opponent, those who they're in conflict with, by using various forms of force or intimidation, such as verbal attacks, including gossip and slander, even physical violence, or efforts to damage the person professionally and financially. And obviously the next step there is the circumstance of legal action that takes place, which it's sad to see how much of that even happens in the church without the church. Jesus describes in Matthew 18 what that should look like within the church first. But obviously the farthest extent there even leads to murder. We see this even in the first few chapters of the Bible with Cain and Abel. The sin of murder was rooted in hate this attack response. And then, as always, there's that third way with Jesus. Isn't he a savior? He saves us from ourselves, guys. He saves us from our tendencies with peacemaking. He leads us out of this escape-flight mentality, and he leads us out of this attack-fight mentality, and he leads us as his followers to a new way, a different way, the straight and narrow path that's to be like him. And in Matthew 18, you get this description of Jesus. For the sake of time, we can't get into it. There's a couple of these key ideas here, but let me give you a sentence to describe what Jesus says about peacemaking in Matthew 18. Listen, according to Jesus, peacemaking looks like, number one, humble self-reflection. That's where it's got to start. Jesus said, before you talk about the speck in your brother's eye, make sure you give some attention to the two-by-four coming out of your face, okay? The plank in your own eye. And the idea there, you get deeper in that, is because it actually inhibits you from seeing clearly with all the sin in your life. You're so focused on everyone else's. So it starts there, self-reflection. That self-reflection, it must be followed by forgiveness. This is before you've even gone to the person. This is huge. When you see your sin, um, you're, you experience the forgiveness of God. And when you, when you understand the extent to which God has forgiven our offenses, Jesus tells a great parable about this in Matthew 18. You can't help but forgive the same way. He who's been forgiven much is going to love much. The person who's not forgiving doesn't understand how much they've been forgiven. Okay. And the goal there next is reconciliation. He talks about winning your brother back. Not winning an argument. This is an argument making. 
This is peacemaking. The goal is winning them back. And so that forgiveness, that self-reflection followed by forgiveness, by the way, before you've gone to the person, because your forgiveness is not based upon how apologetic they are. Aren't you glad that Jesus' forgiveness of our sin is not because of how sorry we are for it, but because he's a good God who is love and he forgives us? Like, there's, there's times, all, there's multiple times a day that I'm not sorry for things I should be sorry for. I don't even realize it. And that's his forgiveness. And it's the same way extended to others. I don't wait for you to, to you know, wallow on the ground and then go, okay, you're pardoned. You know. Go and sin against me no more. You know, like, like we're the Savior. Um, the goal is reconciliation. Sometimes this will often need and mean mediation. He says, bring a couple other people into the conversation. And even church intervention, depending on the degree of the sin. Sometimes I've had these cases with people that are like, hey, we need a mediator. Okay, tell me a little bit what's going on. And I'm like, you just need to, to get over it. That's not a big deal, okay? Like, they didn't like your photo. Like, okay, come on. You know, like, it's the, Proverbs says, it's the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. And sometimes you need people to speak into that. Like, hey, is this a big deal? Am I making, you ever had to do that? Am I making this a big deal? And you need people to go, yeah. <laughs> I gotta get the church involved, you know, man. I gotta get counseling, church discipline this person, get him out of here. I gotta win my brother back. It's like, just chill, okay? Um, but there's the other side of it that you need people to go, yeah, that's a big deal. And don't attack, don't escape, face it the way Jesus calls you. Amen? Point number two. James then talks about peace within. And interesting, in James 4, after James talks about the lack of peace in your relationships, he goes, here's really what's at the root. Oftentimes, the fights in my my relationships, the wars that we face, the conflicts that we face, are often rooted in my own dissatisfaction with life. You see what he says in the next verse? He says, notice this. He says, you lust and you do not have, talking about someone's experience in life, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain, you fight and you war. So this is a person who their conflicts are actually rooted in a dissatisfaction in life. The reason why they're always mad with you is because they're expecting you to give them what only God can. This is why a lot of us are mad. Most of our conflicts are because we're dissatisfied in life because we haven't gone to God for the satisfaction that only he could give. And so this relationship has so much tension because we've put them in the place of Savior and Messiah. That's why it's really important, singles, to make sure that you have found all the satisfaction you need in Jesus before you get in a relationship. You will kill the relationship. There's marriages that are still suffering from this because the the couples, they're looking to each other for the relationship with Jesus primarily, and that shouldn't be the case. The greatest gift that you can give to a spouse, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, is your own personal relationship with Jesus. It will satisfy you in a way that now when they've harmed you, you're able to actually extend forgiveness because you don't need them to be satisfied. Jesus is the one that does that. And he says the reason why you're unsatisfied, did you see it? You're, it's, and he describes this person who's lusting. They're doing everything they can, but it's like they, they're, they're grabbing the wind. And every time they reach and they bring their hand back in, it's empty. There's a sense in which this could lead you to a relationship with Jesus for the first time. Because you've reached and tried to lay hold of everything in this world to give you what only God can through his son, Jesus. Who the Bible says, he's like, the, it uses this illustration, he's the living water who quenches your thirst in a deeper way than anything could. 
And he was speaking that to a woman who had tried like six or so relationships, right? And so here, he says, here's the root of your emptiness. You do not have, verse 2 at the end, because you do not ask. The reason why you're dissatisfied is not because the person isn't satisfying you, but because you haven't come to Jesus. You haven't asked. You haven't sought him. And he says, and even when you've asked, notice this, you haven't received, because when you've come to him, you actually haven't come to him to be your peace, but you wanted him to give you something else to give you peace. You ask amiss, and you may spend it on your pleasures. The extreme example of this is, Lord, um, in Jesus' name, I need a Maserati, right? Please. Amen. Okay. We can, we can kind of look at that verse and go there, but this verse is so much more practical than that. This is a life that's dissatisfied. It's not full with Jesus because it's not looking to Jesus to give them what only he can. I'm going to keep saying that. So even when you come to him, it's, hey, God, can you fix this so that I can have peace? Can you fix my business so that I can have peace? Can you fix this person so that I can have peace? Can you give me this so I can have peace? God, here's what we do a lot. God, um, can you give me that experience that that person's having with you so that I can have peace? You know what the Bible says in Ephesians? I love this verse. Look at this verse. It says that Jesus is our peace. I remember as a kid seeing the bumper sticker everywhere I go, no Jesus, no peace, K-N-O-W. Yeah. And then the other one was, N-O, Jesus, no peace. Uh, as a, you know, and sometimes I see, and I'm just like, I want to ram, like, it's not evangelism, stop it, you know, but there's truth to that, isn't there? there there's peace that's found in Jesus alone. Uh, Jesus told his disciples this, man. He said, my peace, I love this, my peace I leave you. Notice this, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give it to you, though. The one thing Jesus needed his disciples to be filled with as he was leaving was his own peace, the peace of Jesus. And I think what's important is that Jesus says, it's different than the kind of peace that the world gives. You know what Jesus is affirming here? He's affirming that there is a kind of peace that the world gives. There is. There's a, there's a relief that can come from a prescription. There is. There's a gratification that could come from that experience, from that life you're living, whatever it is. But what Jesus gives is what the Bible calls this. Listen, perfect peace. It's Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep him, I love this, in perfect peace, whose mind has stayed on you because he trusted you. You're like, man, I've just, I've never been happier in my life, but is it the perfect peace of Jesus or is it some sort of counterfeit that in the end is going to cost you everything? Only it's the perfect peace peace of Jesus. There's nothing like the peace of Jesus. I mean, this is what's so cool about the peace of Jesus. Jesus says, the peace that I give, that, remember, that harmony, tranquility, and wholeness, that state, he says, it's a kind of peace that you can have even when you're going through hard times. He says, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world, in me you may have peace. Notice the two locations here. You're in me with peace, but you're also in this world. And in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. This is perfect peace. All imperfect peace can give you is peace when the, when the storms are, are calmed, when life is good. But the peace that Jesus gives, it's able even to sustain you in the worst of times. In Jesus. Um, you, you know what the scriptures say. This, 
simple encouragement. So this is what it looks like to be a believer going through hard times. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Are you going through some kind of hell on earth? Are you longing for peace? Instead of, instead of putting all of your stock in anxiety, which can't do for you what you think it does, Jesus encourages us to forsake that and even recognize it at times as sin. Do not worry. It's been said, worry, it's like, it's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And Jesus said, who by worrying is actually going to add to their life? How many of your situations in life were actually solved by your worry? Does it actually work for you? For me, it, I, not only do I find that sometimes things get worse, but not only is my thing bad, but now I'm bad. And I'm off. There's this expression, right, where the, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Who came up with that crap, guys? <laughs> Here's my life. When the going gets tough, it's just about to get even harder. <laughs> the tough gets tougher. But in Jesus, listen, there's peace. You come to him. You go to him. Instead of anxiety, you pray. You spend time with him. You position yourself under his blessing and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It surpasses understanding. You think, here's what I really need in my life right now, some understanding. No, you need peace. I'll be honest, starting this church, we didn't, like, we had some understanding. Like, you could teach the Bible and, like, sing songs. Yeah. Well, then why, why are you doing it? Give me the, in nowadays too, like when you're planning a church, you gotta have like the 10 page. We created the breakdown, but it's like, okay, why, where, what's the demographics? And it's like, is it enough to just say like, God's given me a great piece about this? And I believe God wants more churches because he wants people saved, that's who. But peace, and here's what it does. It surpasses understanding. It surpasses it. It's, it's of greater worth than understanding and it will guard your heart and mind in Jesus. So here's the encouragement we get from God's word. It's to let, here's the encouragement, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Just let it rule, man. This is what Paul says in Colossians. Like, it's surrender. Do you see the surrender involved with the word let? Three letters, so profound. It's almost like saying you can, um, you can let other things rule your heart. You can let anxiety rule your heart. You can let your own understanding rule your heart. What is it for you? You can let that experience, that drug, that drink, that relationship, that whatever that may be, rule your heart. Um, but here's something we need to understand about the heart. Your heart, my heart, it only has one throne. And God doesn't co-rule with other things. God's peace cannot co-rule with whatever else you're looking to. So in order to let the peace of God rule in my heart, you know what this means? Let God's peace be enthroned in my heart. I have to ask God, what do I have to dethrone for you to be enthroned? Let it happen. It surpasses any, it's perfect. It's perfect. Let's close with this last idea that he gives us, and it's peace with God. And this is where it all comes from. And what James is doing is he's going deeper every time. Do you see this? Relational conflict, uh, it's, this is what it's rooted in. Here's what we're called to do. At the root of that relational conflict is a lack of peace within that only comes from God in a perfect way. And when that's satisfied, you will, you will find yourself as a, a less quarrelsome person because you won't be looking to people to give you what only God can. And that satisfaction in God, it will lead you to less and less disappointment and frustration with people. 
But then James says, let's go deeper. Because the odds are that if you're someone that right now, you do have other things ruling in your heart. James talks about a life of sin now. And he said, it could be your biggest problem is not that you don't have peace in your heart. It's that you don't have peace with God at all. You will never have peace in any other form if it's not here first. The most important relationship for you to mend is a relationship with God. And here's why. He says this. He says in verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is writing to those who are in church and think themselves to be Christians. And he's saying that there's people who are in the church, but they're not at peace with God. And the reason is, he says, because they are pledging allegiance to the world. They want to be, now he uses this phrase, those who want to be a friend of the world make themselves an enemy of God. The word want to be in the Greek is this, they've resolved. Like, it's someone in this room who says, I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm pretty decided I'm also going to live a worldly life. I've resolved to also be a friend of the world. And by the way, friend of the world, this is not like Jesus was a friend of sinners. No, you should be that kind of friend of the world. This is a person who lives for the lust of the flesh lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 1 John 3, 16 and 17. It's all that's in this world. And you are resolved to have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world. And it's been said, the conflict you face is that you have actually too much of Jesus in you to enjoy the world. But you also have too much of the world in you to enjoy Jesus. And the danger here, James says, is that you could potentially be positioned, even though you've said all the right things, This kind of resolve to be a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God. It puts enmity between you and God, which is hostility. Um, He even says it's adultery. Adulterers and adulteresses, it's adultery. It's unfaithfulness to God. And, And he uses this expression, and what he's seeking to do, I believe, is to cause our hearts to tremble in the right way. That recognizes, listen, the only person in this world that I don't want to be an enemy of is God. Let all men hate me. If God is for me, who can be against me? And the same is true if God is against me, who can be for me? I don't want to be an enemy of God. But we need to understand that this is our natural proclivity and position as human beings. This is what is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's rooted in some really hard news. That as human beings, fundamentally the Christian faith teaches that human beings are not better than they think they are. They're actually a lot worse than they think they are. Um, And that at the root of, of the human nature is this rebellion against God. It's to have elbow room. It's to say, God, I I want you on my terms. I don't want you as the creator and the Lord of my life. I want you as my homeboy. I want you as my friend. And the result of that is a broken peace with God. This is the nature of humanity. Um, 
Colossians says in verse 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, says that we were once alienated and enemies in our mind toward God. The only hope as those who have become enemies of God through our sin, the only hope of being reconciled to God is God. You and I don't get to will ourselves into right standing with God. Okay? God is not the one who sinned against us. We're the ones who have sinned against him. So to have peace with God, the peace of God hopes in the grace of God. It's the grace of God that would be the hope for peace with God. And look what he says. In light of this reality, here, let's let a cool breeze in, okay? Let's let a cool breeze in right here. Let's open up the window of verse 6. He gives more grace. How much more? Well, this is what I was thinking, more. But this is how bad I've been, more. This is how much of an enemy I've been, more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds, much more. Are you alive out there? That's a great place to praise Jesus. Okay. This is the gospel of Jesus. That sin was no match for God's grace. That there is no enemy that God can't make a friend. That there's no slave that God can't make a son. And so the Bible teaches us in Colossians that it pleased the Father that in Jesus, all the fullness would dwell. And that through Jesus, God would reconcile all things to himself by him. Whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That you and I, who were once alienated and enemies in our mind by wicked works, yet he is now reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless before him in love. That was another great spot for an amen. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Don't force it. God treated his son Jesus, his child, as though he were God's enemy. So that God could treat us as enemies as his children. This is the gospel. What Jesus did on the cross. So that now, Romans 5 says, having been justified by faith. We're right with God, not by our works, but by Jesus' works. You can be right with God today by trusting in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of what Jesus accomplished for you. You trust in that as the means of you being right with God, and you are declared righteous. You become a child of God. You are forgiven of your sin. You are adopted into God's family. You, like Moses, can now be a friend of God. God, through Jesus, signs this unbreakable peace treaty with you unbreakable your sin can't break it your stubbornness can't break it because we can't break what god has sealed through his son jesus and so we come to him and we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ we have peace with god through jesus now james as, as we wrap this up i'll invite the band to come up i want us to now kind of look at this in a contemplative way. He says, in light of this, listen, God gives this grace. Do you see there in verse 6? He gives it to what? The who? The humble. The humble. Back here. He gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, and then comes this famous section of scripture which talks about our response to this grace. It says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. In the sight of the Lord. Thank you, God. He lifts us up. He doesn't kick us when we're down. Think of Paul in the dirt going, oh, Lord, I've sinned against you. Rise up. You know, this is a verse that a lot of people use. Um, I've used this too. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This was like my classic high school camp, uh, Jesus camp verse that I would use to the kids. You know, guys, this week, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, uh, that was always kind of the theme. But uh, do you see the context that this verse is seated in? According to scripture, this grace that God pours out on our lives, this drawing near that God does, which he can't be any closer than the person of Jesus. It's the response and the product of a person humbling themselves before God. You know what drawing near to God is? Humble repentance. You all want to be so close to God. Well, you know what Martin Luther said? The entirety of the Christian life needs to be one of repentance. Oh, I, 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 I did return for my sin that one time. You got, a lot of, you got a lot of repenting to do in the meantime, huh? A lot to catch up on? I mean, every day. That's drawing near. Listen, and this is the only appropriate response to a God with this much grace. It doesn't push you away. It actually does draw you in. And it causes you to, to go, Lord, I have been a friend of the world. But there's nothing more valuable in life than having peace with you. So I'm going to humble, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to resist the devil. He's going to flee from me. I'm going to ask you to cleanse my hands. That's what David prayed in Psalm 51. Repentance. Purify my heart for my sin. How have I been a friend of the world? And then God's grace just, it comes down on you like a waterfall. And I just want to say this, like, I just have this on my heart. Um, I'm afraid for you if you've never done this. And I, I say this in love. I don't care how long you've been in the church. I don't care how much of the gospel you can articulate. I don't care how passionately you sing. Um, I don't care how much you think you're saved. If you have never seen your sin for what it is and humbled yourself before this holy God, I don't believe you've become a true recipient of his grace. But you can because he gives more grace. And so let's do that. This time right now, this is a holy time between us and God, no one else. Where in your life do you need to submit to God? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out soulschurch.com.